Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. This is Asia Tech Podcast. We are the voice of the Asian tech ecosystem. Graham Brown and Michael Waits. My name's Graham. On the other side of the table, Michael, how you doing this evening? Graham, I'm doing super. Excellent. We're going to talk As about... always, lots to talk about, yeah. Well, yeah, top of the hour. We're going to talk about the best startup city in Asia. We've all got an opinion on this, but there seems to be a very strong movement in the voting on Asia Tech Podcast as to which city is the best startup city. So we're going to talk a little bit about that as well as our travels and why. Why is this city the best city or possibly the best city because the voting's not over yet for startups in Asia? Where do we start? So much to talk about. Yeah, so I mean a few things really, right? Um, <clears throat> one of them, if nothing else, is that we're getting a lot of requests from people to go to Singapore, right? So we decided a few months ago we were going to do a tour of all of Asia. We've done a little bit of it already, and we're just going to keep doing it until we hit all the important cities. Um, and, you know, we have Bangkok, we've been in Fukuoka, and we're considering now we're going to go to sh- Singapore. So one of the reasons why, like I said, is because, first of all, we just get tons of requests from people that we interview to go to Singapore – and also because, you know, in two of the categories that we have, one of which is what's the best city, Singapore is starting to run away with it a little bit. Yeah. Right. So we just want to go down while it's fresh in people's minds and figure out why they're voting on it. We have our own opinion. We have our own opinion on a lot of things. Um, no, you know, that's right. About, as well. No, no, no. And I said <laughs> it, was, it was so funny because I was having a conversation with somebody today. And I said that because I like to say that, like, I have an opinion, but I'm not always right. Yeah. of the time. Hey, you know, sort of business aside, (laughs) business aside, I'm looking forward to getting to Singapore airport. I don't know what it is, but I've got a thing for Singapore airport. I don't know if you're an airport man, but you do a lot of traveling like me as well. But Singapore airport for me is probably the best one in the world. Tell me why you think so though. I don't know. I just, I've, maybe maybe it's sort of a nostalgic thing because when I first went traveling in Asia, Singapore was my first jumping off point and it was just a world of opportunity, but I just love it. It's so much going on in that airport. You could live in it. I think it's got a hotel in it. I think I've stayed in that hotel. (laughs) Yeah. I've stayed in it and it has all kinds of things going on. And you know, is it KL or Singapore that has the butterfly garden in there and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's nice. I like it. It's a good place to hang out, (laughs) but you don't want to get caught in there. It'd be like that movie. I don't know. Are you a fan? So Singapore to me, and I don't, I still don't understand how they do this. You get off like a gigantic plane, whether it's an A380, a 777, a 747, it doesn't matter. It's a massive international airport, and yet I'm never in line through immigration for more than three minutes. Exactly. What's going on there? I I don't know. And and there are other airports as well where they spend billions of dollars. So there's a new airport in Korea. Okay, I haven't been there in like two or three years. But still, I'm always – I feel like I'm in line there for an hour and a half. And Hong Kong is just terrible. Mm. So if there's a listener out there from Hong Kong who can tell me, sure, I can get the APAC pass and I can do a whole bunch of other things. But just for regular people going into Hong Kong, it's just terrible. And I don't understand what they're doing in Singapore that makes it so efficient. Yeah. But seriously, never. There's never more than like two or three people in front of me in line, and it's always, yep, you're in, you're in, you're in, done, done, done. It's simple. That has an implication for business, doesn't it? I mean, well, that's what I was going to say. But yeah, aside, I think it does. right? But that that's indicative, isn't it? I mean, I know you're an American, Michael. Going back to America now, if you're non-American, it's just a headache. And you think, well, what does that mean for business? Because that has changed. You know, I was going to America in the late 80s, 90s. 
But now if I go to America, I'm in line. I'm waiting for a, a very long time to get through customs. But you know, you go to Singapore and you're in and out in, I don't know, 10 minutes. You just kind of think, what does that mean for business? Is, are we sort of reading too much into it? Or do you think that actually has a kind of indication for how things are going about now for starting up businesses, doing business in these countries? Well, I want to, I want, you've brought it up. Otherwise I wouldn't talk about this, but I want to share with you my last entry into the United States. And it was a while ago in 2010 because I haven't been back in a while. You're a passport holder as well, right? Bear in mind. Um, I'm a U.S. citizen, born and raised. Yeah. Um, never have any citizenship in any country, never done anything wrong, broken any laws, no, nothing. Yeah. Anyway, 2010, probably in July or August of that year, I'm going into the country. And the guy, the immigration officer, says, looks at my passport, looks at me and says, um, you've, li- you've lived outside the country now for a long time. He says, why? Which <laughs> legally he's not allowed to ask me. Um, and I well, just said, you know, I, maybe I he's just making him. small, small talk. Yeah. Well, no, he's not. He's actually being <laughs> quite mean. And, you know, I know the, I know the rules. And I said to him, look, I, I live outside the country because I've been working out there. And he goes, I don't understand why anybody would want to live outside the country. Wow. Anyway. He, he detained, he detained me. No way! For what? I'm not kidding. I don't know. I still don't know. I sat in a room. Well, the way they say, can you follow me? And they take you into the small room and, you know. Just detained me, put me into a small room. (laughs) No, actually, the room wasn't that small. And there were a few other people in there, all of whom really. Oh, God. You know, oh, it's just insane. And. I literally sat there for an hour and a half and they never told me why I was in there. And then they just called my name and said, you can now leave. That was it. And I wow. don't understand. I still don't understand why. But that that's an American citizen with a valid wow. passport who's committed no crimes going into his own country. I was going to a family barbecue. So I can only imagine what it's like for a foreigner who has no issues just like right. going and trying to go into the country and get business done. It's a massive disincentive, I think, for people. And it brings up why Singapore is so easy. Remember, I'm an American citizen. I, I go to Singapore. I live in Thailand. It's all simple. Hmm. And I do think it's a metaphor for the way business gets done. And I think that's one of the reasons why going into Singapore and to get business done in Singapore actually ends up being so easy. And I think it, Lee Kuan Yew, when he mm-hmm. set it up there, he set it up to get business done. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about this for a while and I've been thinking about, you know, what, what the best startup city is. And, you know, you joked with me about my list. I think it was Singapore. I can't even remember. No, anymore. you didn't say, you said Bangkok, Jakarta and uh, Ho Chi Minh. Are you sure we talk about that? Anyway, you keep trying to rewrite matter. history every episode. All right, I do. Listeners, you can call him out. You can call him out. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I have a you know selective memory. I think in the pantheon of who's wrong, it's probably me, not you. And then, <laughs> you know, but the Singaporean government has dedicated a lot, and, and you know, we've been we we've been in discussions. You know about this with people all over the world about bringing stuff to wow. Singapore. And one of the things we have to teach people overseas is that, you know, the Singaporean government, along with other governments in the region, have just dedicated hundreds of millions of dollars to develop startup businesses, yeah. made a huge commitment to it. And, you know, whether Singapore is better or worse than other places, we'll let the market decide. But the airport, I think, is a great metaphor for just how easy it is to get in there. But the other thing, too, is and people are voting on this, right? This is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about Singapore today <clears throat> is that you know, one of the new categories we we added and we talked about it a little bit last week was, you know, the best co-working spaces. Yeah, yeah. That's been Boy, an interesting vote, yeah. Well, it has been. And, you know, neck and neck, 
you know, Singapore is a country. It's a country with five and a half to six million people, depending on, you know, whether it's the weekday or the weekend, really. Um, and it still has the highest voted co-working space. And the next one is Shanghai and Shanghai's population, just, just Shanghai itself. It's probably three times as many people as Singapore. So I just find it interesting that the people that are there are really passionate about the things that they support. Yeah. And that's an independent co-working. Well, it's part of Impact Hub now. I mean, it was the hub originally. I think it became part of Impact Hub Network. I'm not sure the complete story, but maybe we can uh, find a bit more about that as we go on. But, you know, compared to the two that we were talking about last week, we had WeWork and... Uh, Naked Hub. So, you know, yeah. that just go yeah. tie up. So they're, they're the two big players. So I, I don't know the situation with Impact Hub, but I, I suggest that, I guess that that's an independent in the region, right? So it's just interesting that that one's number one in terms of the co-working space rankings, according to the votes of the listeners. Yeah. And, and look, I, I'm trying to remember the last time I was in Singapore. It wasn't that long ago. But we do get a lot of requests from there, whether it's from angel investors, co-working space um, sponsors, or even just people that we've interviewed. So if you think about some of the other shows that we do, whether it's stories or crypto, you know, the artificial intelligence or even angels, you know, we're just getting a lot of requests from people. Come down after you interview us, after you talk to us, come down to Singapore and see what's going on here. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah changes so fast i mean put it into context you know i've been doing a bit of reading about history i don't know a lot of the history of southeast asia you don't get taught a lot of it outside of asia and i think people now yeah they're just starting to take an interest in what's going on and just even people like lee kuan yu is unknown really to a lot of people outside of asia unless you're in business or startups who have an interest in geopolitical history but just that whole story of i mean if you go back to when singapore was formed as a city-state, it wanted to be part of the greater Malaysia. And that was the plan that Lee Kuan Yew wanted that whole you know, region to be joined together. And he needed Singapore to become part of Malaysia for the thing to work because they didn't have any resources. They didn't have, you know, they didn't have any natural resources to stand on their own two feet post-independence. And Malaysia turned around and booted them out because ethnically they were a little bit different to the Malaysians. And that was the great panic here in Singapore thought, well, this is the end of Singapore because we don't have anything. You know, we don't have the resources of all our neighbors. We don't have the numbers of people. We don't have any money. We're independent now from the British Empire. What are we going to do? And it's just amazing if you think that was no yeah. more than 60 years ago. And where they've come from where they were now, then to where they are now. And even in the last sort of 10% of that ev- evolution, you know, the last six years, where they turned around and said, okay, we don't want to manufacture, be ba- you know, we don't want to be reliant on manufacturing or services now. We want to build this new level of, you know, ev- this evolution of startups. And they've just gone about it with this. In the same way they started out in, you know, when they, they became independent. It's just like, okay, we don't have anything apart from humans, human resources, right? right? And it's right. just been an amazing story. And I don't, think people, I don't think people are aware of that. I don't know. I mean, you've been in the region a lot longer than me. So you're more acute to it, but outside of the region, I don't know. What do you think? 
Well, I mean, I think you bring up a really good point. You know, Singapore as an entity, as a standalone entity, hasn't really been around for that long in, you know, in the life cycle of the universe and in the life cycle of, you know, known history, right? And I remember my first time going there in end of 1990, beginning of 1991, and it was really just as a stopover on my way to a trip to Malaysia, neither of which those countries I knew anything about, right? None. And maybe it had some conversations with a team in Singapore because back then I was working at Morgan Stanley, but there was no competition back then, at least at the same level, as to whether Singapore or Hong Kong was the financial hub in Asia. It was Hong Kong. Right. Morgan Stanley had an office in Hong Kong. Everybody that I knew you know, either was in Tokyo or in Hong Kong in the region, and Singapore was just like a stopover place. But again, that was just in 1990, 1991. I mean, in my mind, it's not that long ago, but it's mm. more than 25 years ago, right? And when I think back about how exotic it was, you know, we walked down Orchard Road and we, you know, we stayed in a nice hotel or whatever it was. It wasn't that expensive back then. And I remember sitting down at some outdoor cafe, having a tiger beer and just thinking, you know, now I'm really in Asia. Mm. And it wasn't too many years after that. <clears throat> You know, back then it was a big manufacturing economy. I think you and I have probably spoken about this a little bit. You know, Creative was there. I think yeah. they were making the sound blaster back then for PCs. And it was that type of economy where, you know, it was more manufacturing of electronics than finance and definitely no startups. But there was no startups in the whole world, really. But I look back on that and I just think even back then, right, because remember Singapore back then in the minds of Westerners, if it had – if it occupied any space it almost seemed you know totalitarian is the wrong word but it was highly managed right Lee Kuan Yew was in power he wasn't leaving he wasn't voted in necessarily and you know it seemed very regimented there were stories about you know people getting caned people <clears throat> you know getting punished in a way that was very sort of regimented and fixed and it just seemed so alien to us and I actually remember a year or two later being on a trip in Vietnam and remember, I was still under 30. I was 26 years old during this trip to Vietnam. And we ran into a group of people, you know, three or four young travelers from Singapore. And we actually asked them because we were on our way to How Long Bay, I think. And I remember being in a van with them. And, you know, it was me and two buddies of mine and like three or four travelers from Singapore. And we said, yeah, you guys live in this really regimented society and you don't get mm. to decide what you want to do and all this other noise. And they said, maybe, but um, it's super clean here. No one, There's no crime. Everybody has a job. Public housing is beautiful and affordable and nobody complains about it. And it's, you know, it's very well organized. It's very clean. And, you know, we know we wake up every day and we know what to expect and our economy is growing. Like they had no problems with what we consider to be sort of a restrictive country. And now you fast forward 25 years or 20 something years from then and Singapore has developed in a way that I don't think anybody, but definitely I couldn't have anticipated mm. If you had said to me, would that be sort of the technology startup center of Asia, and you'd asked me that back in 1990 or 1991 or 1992, I think everybody would have looked at you kind of cross-eyed. And yet there it is in its continuing development. Now, Lee Kuan Yew d did pass away a few years ago, but the systems that are put in, put in place there, whether it's you know GIC, which is the Government Investment Corporation of Singapore, Temasek, right, and through Vertex Holdings, they invest in startup companies – you know, whether it's the <clears throat> Singapore Management University or the National University of Singapore, the Singapore Institute of Management. I mean, I can go on and on. Mm. There's no real way for me to know any of this because I've never lived there. 
But if I've watched this country, city-state, regardless of how you address it, develop over the past 25 years, and I didn't realize when I was visiting back in 1990, 1991, that it was such a new country or a new entity. I had no idea. You know, I was the typical sort of naive young American traveler, even though I was living in Tokyo, I kind of knew nothing about Asia, but definitely less about Southeast Asia than anything else. And I look back now and I just think the progression has been amazing. You know, we focused a lot of time back then talking about how China was going to take over the world. We were definitely early, but its rapid ascent was not something that was surprising to us. But Singapore was there in lockstep. And you can, you know, we, you and I talked to people in Hong Kong as well. And I think even the people in Hong Kong, even though recently you did see some of the fintech associations have agreements, you know, mm. mutual agreements between Singapore and Hong Kong for particularly the development of startups in the fintech space, which I'm happy to talk about too. But you just see Singapore developing in lockstep with what's going on in the rest of the world um, and making much greater strides, I would think, sort of in the global community when it comes to getting a reputation in startups, right? And even if we look at our voting from a city perspective, I want to go down to the city section, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at it, what's the top city? Singapore, Hong Kong's right there next, but not that far away from Jakarta, Shanghai, Kuala Lumpur, Bangkok, right? It's, it's kind of in that category where Singapore has kind of just pulled away yeah. from everybody. And that's amazing to me for a bunch of reasons, right? And not the least of which is that you would think that you know, you and I joke about this a lot where it's in the name, right? So it's so obvious from the name of something, right? So HSBC is actually the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. And you would think that Hong Kong would be so much closer tied, particularly with all of the gigantic startup companies, whether it's Alibaba, Tencent, Taobao, you know, Didi in the shared riding space. And all the other startups, Mobike, which we talked to, you know, one of the guys who's head of international expansion for Mobike, this guy Florian, he was awesome. But you would think that Hong Kong would just blow Singapore away as one of the greatest startup cities. And I think one of the things that we've learned over time is that, you know, cities themselves have personalities and characters. But one of the things that they also have is options. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean, though, right? In the sense that you if you're in Tokyo and I was talking to a startup founder in Tokyo yesterday morning, right? So this woman, Rie Yamamoto, and one of the things that she and I were talking about was, you know, the startup scene. These are her words, not mine, right? So she lives there. She's Japanese. And she said to me pretty explicitly, the startup scene in Tokyo is still pretty nascent, right? So she's building a business called Event Hub. And they're meant really to be this connective tissue for every event where if you're at the event, you use that as the the sort of social media and your social mechanism for meeting people at an event. It's a great idea. It hasn't been done yet in Japan, so she's building a pretty good business there. But even in 2017, she still thought it was nascent. And the voting that we've seen plays that out. I mean, if you look at it, Tokyo's only received 3% of the votes. It's a country that has... I mean, it's a city that has, what, 12 million, depending, again, depending on the time of day, right? People living in it. It's a yeah. massive metropolis. And yet, from a voting perspective, the people, either people that are there, foreigners or non-foreigners, are not so supportive of that ecosystem yet. It'll get there. Um, Still and a yet long way behind. Away. Yeah. Blown away. away. Well, let's have, look at, yeah, let's have a look at some of the numbers, because it's fascinating. There is a clear 
tier one, isn't it? Which is the, the top seven cities, which are Singapore, Hong Kong, Jakarta, Shanghai, Kuala Lumpur, Bangkok, and Shenzhen, which are the top seven, which really between them account for, well, 60, 70% of the vote. Everybody else is below that, scrapping around for single digits. So those are the top seven in terms of the best startup city. We've had over, well, we've had 1,400 and some spare change votes on this award. So, you know, it's well supported. It's not just 100 people voting. It's 1,400 people, and there's more to go, voting for the best startup city in Asia. And here's what's interesting. I'll throw this into the mix. And you talk about Hong Kong should really have given Singapore a run for its money. I mean, Singapore's 23% of the vote. Hong Kong's 15 Let me just throw something into the mix here. What if we added Hong Kong and Shenzhen together and we created that what could be something in the neck for the next generation, at least in the next 20 years, the Greater Bay, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and all those cities that the Chinese government is trying to bring together where you have, what, 200 million people. So even then, it would be, that would make an equal part of, for Singapore, 22%. I mean, is that something that we see in the future? And we're talking about the best startup city in Asia. Can we start? I mean, people outside of Asia don't even know of this Greater Bay initiative. And I think it's just indicative, isn't it, of what's going on? Because it's it's happening in a way they built Singapore, which is very top-down, you know, for the free market, free-willing libertarians in the world. It may be something that they feel uncomfortable with. But, you know, when you look at Singapore, look at the results. As Michael said, right. you know, people can forfeit a little bit of those, you know, that grassroots freedom for a bit of, you know, okay, these guys at the top know what they're doing. However, you know, now we look at the Greater Bay Initiative where – then uniting these seven cities around this, what used to be called the Pearl Delta, from Hong Kong all the way up to Shenzhen. That's really interesting. Is that something you think will become a thing in the next 10, 20 years for startups? So, so there's been a lot of work done, a lot of research work done on bay areas, right? You know, cities that are on a coast that have access to shipping lanes, right? I mean, that's one of the big things about it, right? It's not necessarily, it's just a nice place to be. It's just, it has some economic impact and some economic benefits. And the greater Bay region, like you said, I actually think if you include Macau, Hong Kong, and some of the smaller cities, it's 11 cities that the Chinese have decided that they're putting together. They want to integrate together into one sort of massive economic zone. You just think about how big that is. That greater Bay Area rivals any other Bay Area, not just currently, but in the history of the world. There are just so many people there. I don't know what the statistics are off the top of my head, but I did spend some time, you know, we spent some time on ATP Stories talking to Tony Verb. Yep. And Tony runs something called, you know, Greater Bay Investments or Greater Bay Ventures, which we can, I think we're we're releasing that tomorrow, the next day. I can't remember when it is. And had a really long discussion about what the impact of that is going to be. Now, from his perspective, and you bring up a really good point, right? The idea there is that they're going to integrate these 11 cities. And that goes all the way down. And I say down because Macau is you know, an island in the middle of the ocean. Um, but they're going to include what's happening in Macau into that integration. And the idea is they want to create a series of 11 integrated smart cities, and you just think about the implications of having 11 cities that have, like you said, somewhere between 175 and 200 million people. I believe, and again, it's been a couple of weeks since I spoke to Tony about this, but I believe it's something like $1.3 trillion of economic activity are concentrated in those cities. It includes Shenzhen. It includes the entire province of Guangdong. <clears throat> 
And I, I do find it fascinating that that is going to be a thing. Mm. And there was an entire conference actually on the Greater Bay region that was held not more than a month or so, maybe it's six weeks ago now, to talk about what the impact of every single sector in the technology space is going to be. Just think about you know, automated vehicles, right? So self-driving automated vehicles. If you think about smart cities, which means smart lights, knowing where people are at all times, we will be talking to somebody soon about a smart lighting business that's mainly focusing on Asia and China because of the way that those cities are getting built out. And remember, when you and I were in Shanghai in mm. September, when we were at Huawei Connect, there were there were, what, 20,000 people at Huawei Connect 2017 in Shanghai? Yeah. One of the main things that they were focusing on as well is how can, and Huawei's based in Shenzhen, yeah? How can companies in China help build smart cities? You know, when we think about smart cities, you know, we think about people having an app and just using maps to figure out where the best place is to go get a drink or go have dinner, but it's so much more than that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if you go listen to these conferences and pay attention to the types of things that people are talking to and, and definitely listen to the conversation I had with, um, with Tony because it was fascinating. Yeah, it was, it was really fascinating. But the idea for a smart city is way more than just trying to find out where you are. It's, it's really making the entire, you know, attacking a traffic problem, attacking a pollution problem, atta attacking the, an energy problem, right? What's the most efficient way to run that entire city. Mm. And I think that's going forward. That definitely is going to drive, <clears throat> excuse me, what makes the best startup city? And you make a really good point. Even today, though, still, if you include Hong Kong, and that will be, that is included in this sort of the greater Bay Area, and Shenzhen, you still only get to 22% of the vote. Yeah. But just think about the, just think about the implications of that for what Singapore must be doing right. Yeah. If a region that has 200 million or so people in it still people think Singapore is a better place to do a startup. It goes back to the airport, doesn't it? Where we started on that. It, you know, mm. I think the airport really is the embodiment of what it's doing, right? I mean, if you're going to build an airport, you can't contract it out to hundreds of different builders. Can you, you've got to essentially plan that thing and build it with a clear vision of what you want to achieve. And that's the difficulty, yeah. isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the sort of the flip side is when we try and do it free market style. I mean, like we would do in Europe or less to an extent, less an extent in Europe, but in, in the US for sure, you know, let the market decide. And in a way, I mean, that's kind of really worked out well in the Bay Area, the original Bay Area, right? But there's yeah. also a case for doing it top down. There is. And I think you can have an economy that allows people to get wealthy particularly if your government is transparent about what they're trying to achieve, both from an economic and from a social perspective, even if there's a five-year plan in place. Mm. I think to some extent when you're developing as fast as a country like China is, and frankly, if you're developing as fast as a country like Singapore was when it was going through its earliest and sort of midlife development stages, and there's something to be said for centrally planning what happens there mm. now there is a benefit of having a lot of the people already agree on that right but it makes schooling easier it makes <clears throat> healthcare provision easier it makes building roads easier and again if you go back and look at 
the history of New York City, I think we may have talked about this and addressed this a little bit, but the design of the road systems in and around New York City was driven by, if I, again, if I get the name wrong, I'm sorry, by a guy named Robert Morris. And one of the things that he did in a sort of quasi-government capacity was just use eminent domain to take land away from people and just say, look, we're going to build roads to do mm. this because, one, people are dying on the streets there. But that whole central planning of what they did in the road system in New York, among some other things that he put in place, including park areas and open spaces, basically allowed New York to grow to the financial center of the United States. It was That was not preordained. And I think what's happening both in Singapore with the planning that the government does there you know, at scale, but also what's happening in China via the Chinese government means that, you know, again, if you want to go and tell people that we have an insurance sector that's going to get um, organized now, it's going to move from pr- public insurance to private insurance, it's greenfields. Everything mm-hmm. is greenfields. If we're going to put, and remember we talked to Alvin Wang Graylin from HTC Vive a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things he said, you know, most people when they think about the Vive business, they think about gaming, right? How yeah, can they take yeah. virtual reality, put on the goggles and do gaming? And his, when I addressed this with him, he was way, he was five steps ahead of me and he said, you should think about education. And we mm-hmm. talked about pilot programs in, you know, the further reaches of China where they take students, divide them into two groups, teach some of them with VR and some of them without. And the, the students that got taught with the VR outperformed, meaning, you know, trying to determine who's smart and who isn't smart just based on some old-fashioned grading and testing systems and teaching systems was wrong. But the point is that if you do some of that central planning that the Chinese government is doing, and as long as you're transparent about what the opportunities are that are available to it, maybe it's not such a bad thing anymore, Mm. right? In other words, you can talk about a planned environment as being totalitarian and bad, or you can talk talk about it as just being very ordered. And I think one of the things that Singapore has done, just to get back to Singapore, is it's taken that environment, particularly for the five and a half to six million people there, and created a very ordered environment that's still super dynamic, yeah? Yeah. Let's throw some uh, data out there and start talking about some sure. other opinions as well, because it's, it's not just us riffing about Singapore. I think there's, there's an increasing no. amount of news, isn't there, about why Singapore is a great startup city, but also... I'm increasingly seeing this year in particular why Singapore might be the best startup city. I mean, that's a big, that's a bold claim. And I'm just reading here why Singapore is dubbed the best city in the world to work for a startup. And this is a, a survey published recently. We put the details in the show notes, but it basically summarizes as follows is that uh, a technology employee in Singapore off the bat can earn $38,000 and climb to $59,000, which is more than they would get paid, their counterparts would get paid in San Francisco, Berlin, Germany, Stockholm, and so on. It ranked number one in the world. So on that basis alone, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that has a profound impact when it comes to attracting talent yeah. to Singapore. Now people might say, uh, well, you know, I'm going to go to Singapore now to pursue my startup dreams, as opposed to, you know, well, my default is to go to Singapore or Berlin or London. Now this is a real option. It's not an alternative, is it? Okay, you go to Singapore if, like Michael and myself, were back in the 90s, you were into travel and wanted something a bit exotic. Right. Traveling the exoticism now is a is a, a secondary factor, isn't it? It's the fact that you could go there and earn more money. I'm curious whether that will impact Singapore standing long term or will price it out of the market. 
Yeah, I mean, that's always a double-edged sword, right? I think about this a lot. You know, people say, well, it's really expensive to hire people. But I think you get what you pay for to a certain extent, right? Hmm. Um, There are other countries in the world that people don't talk about a lot. Estonia is one of them where, excuse me, where the level of tech talent is high and has been high forever as well. And yet nobody thinks that it's too expensive to be there, too expensive to hire people there. Remember, if you go back in history, and you and I were talking about this a couple of days ago, wow, it just keeps coming full circle, right? Because I was talking about this with Phil Morrill on the phone a couple of days ago. Like Estonia has been a place where Kazaa was developed, where Skype was developed, mm. where Juiced was developed, um, where RDO was developed, all this kind of groundbreaking peer-to-peer technology. And it continues to innovate and do and do that type of um, development. And yet nobody claims that hiring staff there is too expensive and Estonians themselves love living there. So there's not some mass exodus out of there. But I don't think that the cost of hiring a developer in Singapore is going to diminish its standing as one of the best startup cities in the world. And I'll tell you why. Because a rock star developer, and this has always been the case, and I believe it still it still is the case, you know, one sort of amazing developer or programmer is going to outweigh five kind of middling ones regardless. Yeah. You know this from building other businesses. But you'd rather have one lady who can just kick ass in programming stuff than like five people that are just okay. Yeah. And, and in that sense, it's I don't well think it's going to matter. Yeah, yeah, it's well done. Yeah, I, exactly. I think it was it was Nathan Mermold, the CTO, one of the original CTOs of Microsoft, said they were worth ten thousand times more than an average developer. So that's a bold claim, but you can see where it's going. That that's why that these guys are worth their salt. Yeah. Anyway, so we're going to go. Like, is there any other data that you want to throw out there? Because yeah, if not, I mean, there's other, there, there's, a, there's a couple more because th- this is right in your part ballpark this is this one there's data on venture capital in singapore now this is interesting because we talked quite extensively about vcs and the angel uh scene in in singapore in, in previous podcasts go back and have a listen to those if you're interested we'll just sort of skim it at the top level here is that you know singapore now as an option for venture investments is it's interesting it's growing it doesn't quite have the the exits that you would see in other markets and it doesn't have the you know the the trophy unicorns that you would be familiar with from you know the the bay area and so on but just in terms of investments alone singapore venture investments totaled 725 million dollars in the second quarter of 2017 so half of 2017 wow. three quarters of a billion went into venture investments in Singapore, but there's a lot of large investments within that. I mean, you've, you've mentioned Vertex, for example, already. Um, it's just interesting to see how things are going. And you've got on top of that the accelerators. We've got Muru D. We've had Paul Mayers on the show just very recently, you know, which is part of the Telstra accelerator program based in Singapore. The, the venture side of things, the angel side of things is really maturing, isn't it? It seems to be coming of an age now where it can stand up and say, okay, right, well, now we have our own proper capital scene here in Singapore that, you know, if people grow, they can stay in Singapore. They don't have to go then and think about where they're going to take their next stage business to because there's a lack of funding here. How are you seeing things right. there on the ground as, as a, a venture guy yourself? How do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that that trend is actually going to stop. You talked a little bit about exits, but what, the one thing that I do want to talk about while you're on the topic of money 
is that while we speak, the Singapore FinTech Festival is going on. And this is being organized by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. Just think about that. So yeah. the MAS is the regulatory <clears throat> body in Singapore that regulates the entire financial system there. You know, Singapore has two of the largest sovereign wealth funds, whether it's GIC, which trades global securities and, you know, runs multiple, multiple funds in the hundreds of billions of dollars, and also Temasek, which we talked about earlier. But again, it's not the largest country in the world. It's not the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. Probably there's some competition between um, Adia, the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority, and Norges Bank, which is the Norwegian, you know, sovereign wealth fund. And yet neither one of those countries, Dubai tries, Norway doesn't so much, right, which is kind of surprising considering what their impact is on the global investment scene. Um, but there is a competition in a way between Dubai as a financial center for the Middle East and Singapore as a financial center for Southeast Asia and for Asia. But the question is, do we think that um, venture capital investment is going to continue to happen there and grow there? And I think the answer to that is a resounding yes. Mm. And, you know, I had this view a few years ago that the government may have been too involved. And I'm really starting to come around to the idea that the Singaporean government really knows what they're doing. And that at some level, when the Monetary Authority of Singapore, from a regulatory standpoint, is getting involved or is at least validating what's going on in that city-state, I don't think it can be a bad thing. And when they're also organizing and sponsoring something like the FinTech Festival, just to let you know what the impact is, right – <clears throat> excuse me, is if you look at the pictures on social media being generated and distributed over the past day or so, I think the festival's from the 13th to the 17th of this month, you know, Christine Lagarde, Christine, Christine Lagarde is there. I'm going to mispronounce her name. She's, she's a French politician and lawyer, but she's also the head of the IMF. IMF, yeah. Okay, so people are posting, she's literally walking around what happens to be like the exhibition floor. So just think about, and I use this word a lot, but just think about the implications mm. for Singapore as a center of finance, the center of venture capital, and the center of startups in Southeast Asia or just in Asia, when the head of the IMF is just casually walking around yeah. the floor. I, I think that alone says it. Now, I, and, and again, we can talk about this, and you know, I'm on record as saying I don't think – um, events that have 20,000 people at it are a great place to do right, business. Right. And frankly, I was talking to somebody, we were talking to somebody earlier today and they made a great comment, right? So these big events are great places to network, but not a great place to do deals. But as That's an a, endorsement, a, I think your point is uh, having Christian Lagarde, Christian Lagarde walking around. That's an endorsement. If you go back to that, Moment when you were sitting on Orchard Road nursing a tiger beer or single beer, whatever it was, you know, and where we are now, where the head of the IMF is effectively endorsing Singapore as a player in this whole scene. I mean, that's an amazing transformation, isn't it? I mean, go back, was it the MAS? What, what would the equivalent be? Would it SEC in, in the US? Are they the counterpart there? Was right. They, so the Security and Exchange Commission right. is probably the sister organization to the Monetary Authority of Singapore, just like the HKMA, the Hong Kong Monetary right. Authority. Would, you know, would, they, would they would they sponsor a, a fintech event in I don't know would that happen in the US what would be their involvement there would they endorse it a Bitcoin event or what I can't imagine and and to be fair this is not and I'm, I don't want to say that you said the wrong thing this is not meant to be 
um, a Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in a blockchain event. Although I will say this, the feedback that I'm getting from people that I know that are there, from participants that are there, is that, you know, let's be fair. The founder of Ethereum, so Vitaly Vitalik Buterin is is there, and he was one of the keynote speakers. So you can see what's going on there. And also one of the outcomes, one of the outputs of this festival so far has been that the Monetary Authority of Singapore as building a project with, I think, Accenture or one of the other um, <clears throat> finance companies down in Singapore is a project Ubin. And Ubin is meant to figure out how the Singaporean government can utilize the blockchain, how they can get involved in the cryptocurrency space, and how they can work with the distributed ledger technology to make the Singapore dollar a digital currency oh. front to back. Wow. Love it. Love it. The yeah, so blue sky, be, I love it. The so, so un, unpublic right? sector, ungovernment, uncivil service, I love it. Yeah, and again, what it does is it brings up another discussion, and I don't want to veer into this so much, right, because I really just want to talk about Singapore and the region, but there is some discussion about, you know, when governments get involved in distributed yeah, yeah. ledger technology, the whole idea is supposed to be the democratization and decentralization of money and things and data. But at some level, I think it's going to take a lot of time and energy to destroy the barriers of mm. fiat states, whether it's fiat currencies or not. But, you know, removing the barriers of citizenship and local states, I think it's going to take a long period of time. Right, At right. some point, it may happen. We can argue about that, you know, under different cover. But the, you're right. The fact that a government is getting involved and in trying to figure out how to do this, again, it's just another validation. Mm. And when you have all these things coming together with Christine Lagarde there from the IMF, right, the whole thing being sponsored by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, which is a you know, de facto arm, obviously, of the Singaporean government. And then them coming out with Accenture, I believe it was, right, from a consulting standpoint, saying we're trying to build this project Ubin and try to figure out how to get distributed ledger technology to make the currency itself digital from beginning to end. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> these are exciting times. So should we talk about going to Singapore? Let's talk about our plans because we can't talk about Singapore in the context of not going there ourselves. That's our plan, right? We're going to be there end of the month. Do you want to share some details? And I mean, it's pretty open in terms of what our, uh, you know, ultimate goals are with Singapore. We want to go there as we talked about with the tour before, go there and really understand and get a feel at the ground level. We've got meetings set up. It's a pretty busy, busy schedule, but do you want to sort of share a little taster of what's going to be going on whilst we're in Singapore. Are we going to be doing a live broadcast from Singapore? Because if we can, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, God, there's just so much to unpack there, right? So theoretically, not even theoretically. So my plan is, and I think your plan as well, is we'll fly in, we'll fly in either on the evening of the 29th, yeah. but definitely we'll be there on the 30th, the 1st, and maybe even the 2nd of December, probably the 2nd of December, um, you may stay on longer, but I'll definitely be there. I may stay for the weekend just to see what the whole ecosystem looks like. But I think we want to meet and we're planning to meet already, you know, players, whether that's co-working people, people that sponsor events. Yeah. Um, if we can meet the Monetary Authority of Singapore, that would be fabulous as well. What, what you don't know is that in, in the interim between the last time that I spoke to you two hours ago and now – We've been promised an introduction to the MAS, and hopefully we'll be working on that. And we'd like to meet them face to face to talk to them about a whole bunch of things. FinTech is one of them, um, but you know, just understanding what they're doing in that space and getting more direct information on Project Ubin and the DLT stuff, so the distributed ledger technology stuff that they're talking about. We also want to meet angel investors. It's very important to us to help build 
an angel investor network, not just in Singapore, but maybe, maybe, we don't know yet, but let's see how it goes, but maybe talking to angel investors there and building an integrated angel investor network in the whole region with part of that being in Singapore, you know, yeah. connecting what's happening there with Fukuoka, with Ho Chi Minh, with Bangkok, with KL and with Jakarta and trying to build sort of an integrated angel investor network there. But, you know, talking to places, like we said, like the Singapore Management University, the Singapore Institute of Management, we know people that are down there that are building or talking about building things like that. And we can say them by name. So I'd like to visit Rena Neo, who's invited us to come down there and talk to her about some of the things that she's working on. You know, the hub has invited us to come down on many occasions to, to talk to them and see if there's a way that we can partner with them. We haven't decided yet. They haven't decided yet whether that's the right thing to do or not, but it's just good to have all of these little pieces coming together. Um, and I think the trip's going to end up actually being super busy, but it gives us a good indication, I think of how that ecosystem has developed in Singapore over time. And, you know, frankly, if anybody hears this and they want to get on our schedule as well, please do that because the schedule is filling up pretty quickly. But all of those things are the things we're trying to accomplish when they're, when we're there so we can just get a better sense of who to meet and how to build some of the things that we're trying to build, particularly from um, an investment standpoint and connecting those investors to some of the startups, right? So mm-hmm. do you want to talk at all about the pitch. I mean, we're trying to build uh, yeah. an ecosystem around getting startups to talk to us about pitching their businesses in long form. Because yeah. So should we talk about, I mean, I think the key to that is the genesis of that conversation, isn't it? We, if we go Please. way back to, I don't know, ATP 10 or whatever it is, you go back six more months in our yep. Asia Tech podcast weekly shows, we were talking about demo days. And, and the thing is, demo days have right. been like the default for startup founders to pitch effectively their company in a very short amount of time. It could be a matter of 10 minutes to a group of people who may not be a pe- be paying attention. They may be out of the room taking a call. They may be noisy. They may be focusing on the last pitch that came before them and so on. And these founders have gone three months through these programs and then they stand up and pitch their audience on this demo day. And that's it. And for many of them, that's the only chance they'll ever get. And we think, well, that's fine. That's that's kind of like being the industry standard. That's what's happened with accelerators and startups. And many people have just copied that because it works to some degree. But we were talking about, well, what happens next? What happens when people want to find out more or they forget who that person was pitching that great idea or that great startup Suddenly, you know, they had a crappy demo on stage and the technology didn't work. Doesn't mean that they were crap, just means time wasn't right. So we thought, you know, we need to put something out there, create a platform for these startup founders, especially here in Asia, to be out there permanently, a permanent record, so people can find them. You know, how do I find out who's doing great startups in AI, right? How do I find out? You know, is somebody doing this in cryptocurrency or I've heard about this startup? How do I find out? So this whole idea of the pitch was born, which, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, is really a radio show for founders to get on, talk to us and pitch their startups such that people can archive that, discover it, search it, share it. They can share it and that give these founders a chance to get out there and give them a much bigger platform which they can share their story. 
Yeah, look, I mean, I think our opinion back then, six months ago, like you said, when we talked about demo days, I think <clears throat> our opinion is the same, but it's much more well-developed. So I want to run through that a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, and I think this is part of one of the reasons, part of the reason why we want to go to Singapore as well, to try to work on making this better and to do a show that we're going to call The Pitch and talk to people down there about being involved in it. So let's just talk about one of the things you mentioned, demo days and pitch competitions. They're completely suboptimal for startups and investors. An investor only gets to see a very short presentation, and a startup, you know, if the tech goes wrong or if the lights go down, it's like not the startup's fault, but they get judged negatively because they think, you know, someone in the audience has to create the drama around, well, I guess if you couldn't get your tech organized for this thing on stage, then there's no way that you could program proper tech to build out a global business. It's just the wrong way to do it. But one of the other issues is that it's also proximity and time constraint. You get a short amount of time to pitch, and you also get, can only pitch to people in the room, mm-hmm. which is really silly in our mind, right? <clears throat> and people that have tried to do this in the past, whether it's through Shark Tank, which is something I really don't like, people want to get that brand out here. And they're starting to move it into Vietnam, into Singapore, and stuff like that. And I think it's just as bad as the pitching competitions and demo days. And all the short short video and audio that's done so far is just it's just basically taking a really bad experience and putting it online. And the the you know in my mind these formats are too short and too gimmicky. And what we really want to do is solve this by having an investor who's invested in startup companies sit down and have a substantive conversation with a startup going back and forth with them on an interactive basis and just talking them through what the purpose is for their startup, what mm-hmm. they expect to to build, what the problem is that they're solving, and ask a real question like it's a real pitch in a real office with real professional people and having a professional conversation with the, with doing this. And I don't think anybody else has done that yet. And frankly, I don't think anybody else can do that as as well as we can. And the other thing is, because we're going to put them online and because we're going to be doing them online, there are other things we can build around it. Like we can actually do it live, mm. which means that people can participate in it, but we can also archive it so that if for some reason, think about a normal demo day, you know, if your child had a soccer game that day, which you definitely want to participate in and I highly recommend you do, you couldn't see that pitch. But we can archive all these things and then give investors the ability to not be proximity and time constrained. Mm-hmm. There's just so many reasons why this works. And we want to make sure that we include the community in Singapore in this because it just fits in with everything we're trying to do, not just from a broadcast perspective, but from an angel investment perspective and from supporting the startup ecosystems in the entire region. Mm-hmm. You make a great point as well. I like the bit about having a, a, a qualified investor sit down and have a conversation. So you mentioned Shark Tank as an example. That's kind of what people have grown accustomed to as as sort of the entertainment arm of the industry, isn't it? I mean, it's just entertainment. It isn't real in the sense that this is how startups do. This isn't how the industry works. Is it? It's just entertainment for entertainment's purposes. But, you know, when you sit down with a lot of startup founders and ask them to pitch you in in many cases they're not that good at it because these people are passionate often about other kind of things and they haven't sort of spent time thinking about the storytelling or you know and they don't have the bandwidth to do it Uh, you could imagine if you you sat down with the the google boys and asked them to explain what this thing was say okay right pitch me this idea in five minutes i can imagine that they would have been pretty damn useless at it 
in the early days. They were. You, you <laughs> they thought, were. You know, but then it took an investor to sit down and said, actually, let's have a conversation. I can see what you're trying to do here and so on. But that's not how we're set up to do things in the industry. It's like, okay, right, you're on stage. I want you to perform. Five, ten minutes, go. If you gave that to the Google boys, people would have thought, well, who the hell are those guys? They were useless. <laughs> they couldn't even like speak properly, right? They bumbled their yeah. way through the presentation. So that's why it's got to be a conversation, isn't it? And I think that's what we're trying to do here, solve that problem. I think so. And the other point I want to make is that most of this entertainment, for some reason that I don't understand, tries to unnaturally create two things. One is drama. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And two is negativity. You know, like Survivor as a reality TV show is no different than Shark Tank. Who gets thrown off the island, right? So who gets thrown off the show? And whether it's you know, America's Got Talent, or you, like it's all about who gets thrown off. That's where the drama is. As opposed, and people like the winning, of course, but the idea is you get people judging to create drama and negativity. It's like you suck or you're bad at this, and that, and that's funny to some people. But I think when you're trying to make an investment, I don't think that that's optimal. No. And I want to fix that. We want to fix that. Yeah, exactly. So watch out for the pitch. That's coming this way soon, as well as all the other podcasts that we now have. We don't just do this weekly show, Michael and myself. We're busy. We're doing other <laughs> things. If you go to asiatechpodcast.com, asiatechpodcast.com, and you, if, if you have it on your web browser, you can see podcasts on the top in the, the menu bar, asiatechpodcast.com slash asia hyphen tech hyphen podcast. You can see all our different podcasts that we have. The weekly one, we have Asia Tech Podcast Stories. People often ask me what's the difference. Well, the weekly one is just me and Michael, Michael and myself just ranting about whatever we feel is relevant <laughs> and talking about our, you know, whatever is on our diary for that week. Asia Tech Podcast Stories is interviews with all the entrepreneurs, founders, and investors out there. And then we have our latest verticals, which is our Asia Tech Podcast Angels, which Michael is doing, which is, you know, a, well, the first time it's ever been done, I think, in Asia. Yep. A, a, a track for angel investors to tell their story. And we have crypto, which is Michael talking to all the, the weird and wonderful developments in cryptocurrency and blockchain in Asia. And then also just out Asia tech podcast, artificial intelligence, AI, which is my thing, my shtick, which is all about artificial intelligence and machine learning in Asia. Add to that the pitch, which is coming soon. That'll be six podcasts in the stable. Happy with that? Yeah. I mean, there's more to come as well. We we don't like to talk about vaporware, but let's just say that there are probably two or three other shows that are in pre-production that I think will excite people as well. So yeah, very happy about it. Yeah. Michael, thanks so much this week. Let's... Uh let's uh, keep the momentum going on this tour for Southeast Asia and we'll share some updates next week with some well we've got some dates already out there but some of our plans for doing a live show as well so that'll be the end yep. of November I look forward to speaking to you then can't wait you've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com <laughs>